time for Lickin' On Lending. Welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Lickin' On Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news, all related to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call-in line is 646-716-4972. Now here's your host of Lickin' On Lending, David Lickin. Let's begin. Welcome, everybody. It's Monday, December 14th, 2020. So good to have you here with us. Hey, people ask me, who is that guy that does the opening recording? And they go, is he from Canada by chance? Yes, that is our beloved Paul King. Did a great job, don't you think? He does that regularly. But we thank you for all of those who have contributed so much. And our newest contributor on the behind the scenes is Nikki Whitaker. She does a great job. If you're looking for someone to edit your podcast, get a hold of Nikki. She does a great, great, great job. So anyway, so pleased to have you with us. This podcast is created by Mortgage Professionals. It is for mortgage professionals. And we're so grateful to have you as our listener. Our commitment is to bring you timely information in an audio format you can listen to anytime and anywhere. And we really appreciate when you share this podcast with your peers, with others in your company or within your network. It is how we've grown to the size we have. So we are successful and it's because you are listeners. Thank you. Our hot topic today is an episode that we pre-recorded with Ted Kramer, who's founder, owner, and president of Innovian. We're going to be talking about the capital markets and we're talking about the complexity in pricing And every loan originator should hear this. Every C-suite executive should hear this because I think typically because secondary marketing people are more analytical, they are quiet. They don't do enough to blow their horn. And I think you're going to really enjoy the interview that we pre-recorded. He was so dubious that we wanted to pre-record it, make sure he could listen to it and approve it in advance. And so it's a good interview and you're not going to want to miss that later in the hot topic segment. Pleased to be a part of the Industry Syndicate. Check out industrysyndicate.com. Lots of podcasts there related to the industry that you can listen to as well as mortgagemedia.com. I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors, the Mortgage Bankers Association of America. Love the Marina Walsh interview that we did back in September about cost origination. Interesting, we're going to get Mike Frantoni on as we get ready to go into the new year. I have him talk about his projections. You know, is this going to be a $4 trillion origination year? We'll have to see where these numbers for 2020 come in at. A lot of optimism about the new year. Thank you for all our friends and all that the MBA does for our industry. Also, Finastra, they have a new survey out. We're going to be scheduling an interview with several of the execs at Finastra talking about that survey. We mentioned it a while back when we had them on August 24th. We had Steve Hoke on. I got a preview to it, but very interesting. We're sharing that. The money between Christmas and New Year's. Also, Lenders One, check them out, as well as the Mortgage Collaborative. Both of these co-ops do a great job of bringing lenders and vendors together and create collaborative efforts on looking at what the best practices are of the various industries. So if you're looking to get a part of an instrument group, get a hold of either Lenders One or the Mortgage Collaborative. We had Tom Gallucci on here recently, December 7th. He did a good job of that interview. I love Tom's energy. I enjoyed that interview. I just, I like people who are a beat. Tom certainly was. Also, Community Mortgage Lenders of America. Michael Jones was on on September 21st. Also, Indicom. 
Linda Bulmar and uh, Nairan Barabwash. They had a great job August 31st. Also in Celerate, Josh Finn was on August 17th. He talked about what they're doing with the Incelerate program to really revolutionize how lenders interact and communicate with engaged borrowers. Very, very exciting. As well as Ainsworth Advisors, as well as AI Assist, as well as Celebrity Home Loans, Innovient, which Ted is a guest today, as well as Knowledge Coop, our friend's great learning management system, as well as Modex and Mobility RE. Both of these companies help you in the recruiting process. Check those out, as well as Velma, Vendorsurf, and Vidyard. So good to have you with us. Always say a thank you to Alice, Alan, and Matt for their contributions each and every week. We're going to get right into the hot topic segment. If you're listening to us live, don't go away. Just stay right here. We're going to get right into it. If you're listening on a downloaded basis, check out the next podcast and it'll be the hot topic segment, which we're going to get into right now. Welcome everybody to the hot topic segment of the Lick It Unlending podcast, where we have as our special guest, Ted Kramer, founder, owner, and president of Innovient. Innovient, as the name implies, has some innovation in it. We're focusing in on the capital markets. We're going to be discussing how Innovient goes about solving a lot of the complexities, but I really wanted to get Ted on. He's a thought leader in our industry. I've heard him speak at many conferences. He's become a friend. So listen to a really bright guy with a lot of details, probably one of the brightest guys in the capital markets. And I think this podcast, what I'm about to share with this hot topic, segment, should be shared with every originator and every C-suite executive. And you need to find out what tools are you using and if this is something that'd be good. Again, this is not an infomercial. We get into it towards the end of the interview, but we're talking about the complexity in the secondary markets. And you need to understand this, originators, as well as the C-suite. People do not appreciate all that goes in the secondary market. So without further ado, let's get into the interview that we recorded last week with Ted Kramer. Folks, I am excited to have joining us on the podcast today, a good friend and an innovator, Ted Kramer, who's president, founder, and CEO of Innovient. Ted, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me, David. It's a pleasure. Ted, so our audience gets to know you a little bit. How did you find your way into the mortgage industry? Was it intentional or was it accidental? You know, it was uh, a little bit of both. The industry itself was accidental. Actually, my formal training and education is in computer and information sciences. And I had been in my career for a few years prior to that. And actually, going back to date myself a little bit, to 1985, I joined Prudential Home Mortgage, which some of your listeners will know and some will not. But at that time, we were back and forth, number one and number two in the industry with Countrywide. We went back and forth, and we were a joint venture between Prudential and Lehman Brothers at the time. And we became quite a powerhouse in the industry. The alumni group is pretty elite, and I was very blessed to be a part of that team, that's for sure. It was a great group and the quality of the individuals and the talent, the brilliance that was in that company was extraordinary. And so it's a great place to land in the industry, but you got into Prudential, but how did you find your way to the capital markets side of the business? You know, I've been on board for about a year and was again in the technology area and automating various aspects of the mortgage industry at the time. And Dave Lohman, who's a name that a lot of folks recognize, we had just stood up a correspondent division, Lender Express, or Lex, as we called it back then. And they were in their early stages of evolution and were looking for technology to drive their growth and to automate it for efficiency's sake and the like. And I was able to work out an arrangement with Dave coming from the IT side. I had fallen in love with the industry early on, just from what I was doing from a technology standpoint, and it fascinated me. And so I had somewhat sought Dave out at that point and said, you know, Dave, I'd love to get my foot into the business side of things and make the transition someday, potentially from IT to the 
to the business side. And Dave said, well, we'd love to have you on board. And we worked out a situation where that was the liaison from the business unit to the IT group. So I was tasked with helping define those business objectives and help uh, streamline the process through automation. And it was a great place to be within the company. As you know, on the correspondence side, they tend to be the tip of the spear with respect to rolling out of products because we're not having to do the development of uh, processing and closing and underwriting. We're typically looking on the closed loan side. So we're a little further down the path at that point. So we did tend to be the tip of the spear from a product development standpoint. So while I wore my IT hat from a business unit standpoint, I also had the product development side. So it was a great way, like I said, to be at the tip of the spear from a product development standpoint. And Um, that's so so critical, especially for the things we're going to be talking about later that you do with your company. What a great place. It was a great company. I mean, how fortunate you were to get in that. Now, talk a little bit about your preparation. Did you have a formal education that prepared you for this job and your responsibilities? Or was it that what many of us received and that's OJT on the job training? You know, my education formally was in computer science. So when I came out of school, that was my craft and that's the area that I landed in in Prudential. But as I became more and more enamored with the financial services side, I guess it was more organic flow. Now, I will say from a capital market standpoint, once I was working in the correspondent division and doing product development, clearly there was a lot of interfacing with the capital markets group from a product development side. And I was fascinated with the capital market side, perhaps given my analytical background, that probably drew me to it, but really, really liked what I saw on the capital market side. So I pretty much had my mindset on that long term to make my migration over to that end. Yeah. Was it the analytics of that? I mean, you look at capital markets, there's a lot of numbers in it. I can see the compatibility between computer science and the capital markets. Talk a little bit more about that. And what I'm speaking to is the part of our audience that is looking to find where they need to place themselves in the industry. So that's the group we're speaking to with that question. Sure. Again, given my background and logical thinking, typically going down that science is aspect, I tend to be a little more black and white, if you will. I do have a creative itch side of me as well. I think that served me very well, both from a software development standpoint, business analytics, certainly doing a lot of process redesign for streamlining and the like. So process re-engineering, if you will. So that certainly was where I gravitated to initially. And I think it was the discrete side of things on the capital markets. I was just fascinated with the hedge and the inner mechanics of pricing and the execution side. I saw the traders in action, just something that drew me to that side of the business when I was good grief in my late 20s. So it was an area that I was fascinated with. And I had an opportunity to move into our agency relations group. I went after that and was very blessed that Mary Blue, who's still in agency relations now at Wells Fargo, which, as you know, Prue sold themselves back to Wells. In a lot of ways, Wells is the former Prue Lehman entity. So there's still a lot of great talent over there that came from the Prue days in that regard. So the agency relations group was obviously very sophisticated. It still is. We're a large national account, number one in the country. And our contracts were probably some of the most complex out there. We had multiple three-ring binders of variances and and alike just because some of the innovative things we were doing in our corporate relocation and affinity lending programs and the like. So it was a great place to be. And we worked hand-in-hand with our capital markets partners as well as the business channels as well. So really fortunate to have come up there. Yeah, you've had a great path and so fortunate to have your line, your skills and abilities and interests all in a career that calls on so much of that. It may be a good time. Could you give us a quick overview on the capital markets and how they started and how things have developed over the years? 
Well, I certainly didn't come in at the beginning of it, although I'm probably pretty well seasoned with 30 plus years in the industry, that's for sure. But at the time, my early days, things were certainly not where they are today. I think we were certainly fortunate that we were large enough to have our own shelf registration. Basically, we were doing our own private label securities on anything that couldn't go to Fannie, Freddie, or Jenny. You were one of the first, I believe. Yes, and very successful. Did a lot of senior substructures and were very successful with that. A lot of great talent in that area of our company as well. So I was blessed to be in a company early on that was at the top of the food chain. We were the aggregator. We weren't selling anywhere other than to the investor community directly. At that point in time, it was a lot simpler. There was a natural evolution back then, and I think even up till perhaps maybe 10 years ago, where if you were a startup entity, you worked on getting your balance sheet to a point where you could get agency approval, working your way up to uh, mandatory so you could put a hedge in place and get the extra execution benefits of a mandatory, whether that was through a traditional rate sheet or an assignment of trade. And then you worked your way into an agency execution with the GSEs, for instance, Fannie, Freddie, and you were probably on a cash selling basis initially. But your goal was to evolve into an MBS delivery or mortgage-backed securities simply for execution. There was a superior execution back then to cash and also for operational reasons. We didn't have electronic delivery. Everything was pretty much FedEx or otherwise in terms of collateral docs and the like. So there was a lot of efficiencies to go MBS and give a skinny package or minimum collateral to your custodian for mortgage-backed securities versus all of the overhead that was accompanying a cash execution with the agencies and and basically an entire loan package. So that was the evolution back then. Today, it's so much different. And we can certainly talk about that as well, if you like. I would like to know, how has that changed? Well, all of those avenues are there, although the assignment of trade has pretty much disappeared. Wells Fargo still has an assignment of trade out there. And quite frankly, I think it's been a great proxy for a lot of the market because it's still something that the market can count on in terms of a forward mandatory that has a realistic price out there that those folks that are trying to price to on their rate sheets, et cetera, that are on a mandatory basis still can have a pretty good proxy of where their execution takeout will be. And they're pretty much the only one left. When bulk bidding came into play, probably in the last three years, it really came on strong, most of the other players asked you to pick a lane. They did not want you to arbitrage between the bulk bidding process, which was on a single loan, whole loan basis, if you will, and an assignment of trade. And one of their ways of doing that was that if you're going one direction or the other, they really faded their assignment of trades. And, and over time, they pretty much just rotted on the vine, if you will, where those AOTs were not worth the paper they were written on. So essentially, again, Wells is the last one out there. Bulk bidding came into play, and it's been a great tool for the correspondents on the buy side. They can turn that spigot on or off on a daily basis. They have an appetite for additional assets. They can turn on the spigot intraday or that day. Tomorrow, if that picture changes, they can back out of the market. So there's less of a commitment to the seller, that's for sure. And I guess it's a double-edged sword. Everyone is looking for best execution and squeezing every penny. I think that that relationship side of the business from an aggregator standpoint has certainly suffered in that regard. I think the commoditization of the industry went into full speed ahead mode when the bulk bidding came out. I think you'll find there's much less loyalty from the buy side and the sell side. A lot of customers that, that I know and folks out in the industry, they're selling to 10, 15 different investors today. That just wasn't tenable five, 10 years ago. You would hear the old adage, if you had too many investors, you better go on an investor diet. You certainly wanted to diversify and make sure you didn't have too much concentration risk with only one investor in a given product outlet. But today it's gone, the pendulum swung to the point of 10, 15 different outlets. So Again, the relationship side of the business has somewhat faded and been supplanted with the execution side, that's for sure. 
You talked about the pendulum and how it swings. It has swung to multiple investors from going on an investor diet. Do you see that pendulum swinging back and forth, or is this one that's going to stay where people are going to be wanting to have multiple investors and a good number of investors? Do you see that continuing? Well, it's gone both ways. And to back it up, I'll give you a little more background on the complexity, how things have changed from when I was initially selling many years ago. We talked about the evolution from best efforts to mandatory to cash to MBS, and that was typically the, the progression. Today, it's a continuum. Everybody is evaluating. Our products are comprehensive in that regard. I mean, we have customers that are looking at MBS and cash on a daily basis. Which one is the better option, Ted? Well, from an execution standpoint, David, MBS had historically always been the best execution, both from an economic standpoint and operationally. I think today it's really a case-by-case basis. Fannie and Freddie can lean into either delivery method from a pricing standpoint, and we've definitely seen that. We have uh, very large customers selling over a billion a month that you would think would be delivering MBS, and they're delivering cash. And there's several Mm. reasons for that. Some of them may be velocity on the warehouse line. In some ways, they can get quicker turnaround on the line with cash pricing where they're going to get funded on the second business day after delivery. So there might be some incentive there to drive that. So there's a parity between the two. And again, the GSEs, while they prefer cash, I give them more flexibility for asset allocation and deal structuring on the back end themselves. I think they prefer the flexibility that cash affords them. But clearly, we have a lot of clients that are also selling MBS. And it's just a matter of them working with their Fannie Freddie reps to achieve those objectives. But certainly, you can achieve parity from both an MBS and a cash standpoint. That being said, a lot of customers continue to look at both sides of it to ensure that they are not leaving any money on the table and potentially arbitraging. And there might be some note rates on the discount side or wherever that they might decide to go cash versus MBS, depending on where the markets are, things of that nature. But again, it's not that black and white anymore. It's a great answer. And I think it just underscores the complexity of this all. But every time I hear you speak, I keep going We have got to make this content known in the marketplace. And then from that point on, I really do believe people will be beating a path to your door. That's where we want to go. I mean, you're not a solution. I mean, yes, you're a solution, but it's so much more, right? Right. The critical thinking and it's the analytics that go into this, and there's so much here. And I can't wait to get and talk about your product because this is where your product really shines. But talk about how frequent they have to look at this. Is this daily or can this actually be intraday and in how they're doing the analysis? It can be both. Certainly, I think from an intraday standpoint, they've chosen who they're going to price to. The bulk bids that are coming in and out of the market, that's something that they can't rely on day to day from a pricing standpoint. So I think they're putting their stake in the ground based on some more reliable pricing and sources, whether it's the AOT I mentioned, some other mandatory takeout, or their pricing to Fannie Freddie with some type of an implied servicing valuation that they've used, whether it's conservative or otherwise. And then because that's one detriment to where we've gone with bulk bidding, most customers of seller's side has lost that dependable mandatory takeout. They don't know where a dependable mandatory price will be 30, 60 days from now with the exception of that one AOT I mentioned. So they're constantly having to recalibrate and where are these investors pricing relative to the GSEs or to the TBA market, the mortgage-backed securities market. So they're having to start to track historically, where are these investors coming in when I sell relative to where the markets are and constantly calibrating their pricing to where it is because we've lost that forward mandatory pricing that I think was very valuable to the industry. Right. Then it's grown in complexity because of the elements that go into pricing. For example, loan size, other characteristics, even the states that are originated. Talk a little bit about where we find ourselves today, the additional complexities 
Sure. A lot of what you're describing happens on the servicing side, for sure. And with the aggregators, that would typically be baked into their bulk bid price, which is an all-in price. Both the mortgage asset and the servicing rights are baked into an all-in price. Those folks that are selling agency direct to Fannie, Freddie, or Jenny Mae, those are going to be two separate pieces. They're going to have the mortgage asset value from Fannie and Freddie, whether it's cash or MBS in the TBA markets, or from Jenny Mae. Then there's the servicing component of that as well. And those values tend to ride in opposite directions with respect to the mortgage asset and the servicing value. Some things that might increase the mortgage asset value might actually decrease the servicing rights value from a prepay standpoint or otherwise. So some of these are running in opposing directions with respect to value. But you're right. On the servicing side, there's so many moving parts. Certainly, geographic graphics, whether it's state, there's so many other things that the servicers are taking into consideration regarding speed, whether it's interest on escrows and how frequently those interest payments are are required to be paid at the state level, quarterly, semi-annually. There's various default assumptions that are at a state level as well. LTV, FICO, debt-to-income ratios. There's other certain programs that may increase or decrease the likelihood of prepayment sooner or later. So there's always a speed story that's out there that, let's face it, all the investors are constantly looking for clarity as to what is the duration of this asset? How long am I going to have this on the books? What's the value of it so that I can pass on that price on the buy side? And they're always trying to tweak and refine those. And I think that all those data points have grown significantly in the last several years in terms of what's being passed on to the seller. And somebody has to manage that information. I'll give you an example on a co-issue or whether you're selling to a co-issue servicing buyer or whether you're retaining it on your balance sheet and you're using either your ALCO committee, your asset liability or treasury folks will give you an internal value for the servicing or you're using a third-party valuation firm for your servicing rights, whether it's a Phoenix Capital or a Citus AMC or, or some of the other players out there. There are hundreds of data points that they are providing because there are so many layers of factors that affect speed on these loans. And it's a lot to digest. And it can be intimidating for some shops. That's a space we live in very well. We make piecemeal of those. We chew on those very well. We have already built templates for each of those. We've got all of them very well in our arsenal in terms of those assets. And if it's coming through through uh, Fannie Mae's servicing marketplace, for instance, or SMP, where Fannie has gone a long way to help standardize formatting of these executions from the servicers. We also have APIs to digest that. So with a product like Anovian, it's easy for a customer to evaluate two, three, four, six different servicing takeouts and throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. Is this a competitive player or not? Without those tools, you're basically spending an enormous amount of time with custom spreadsheets and evaluations and look at hundreds of data points and your analysts are spending an enormous amount of time just to gin that up to see if it's even worthy of going that direction. Whereas we can help them evaluate that very quickly and make their market decisions in very minimal time with very few resources devoted to it. You're almost doing that in real time with your technology, correct? We are. Whether it's custom spreadsheets from investors, whether it's through APIs with other investors who are leading the pack, or like I said, the SMP, other APIs, we can digest any of those and we do it very well. That's what we specialize in, actually. And then if that wasn't complex enough, up, you have some of your customers that are doing multiple rate sheets. The complexity of producing that many different rate sheets with all these factors go in, it's Herculean without a system such as yours. That's right, Dave. You're right. And we do have customers that generate literally hundreds a day for each price or reprice throughout the day. So I'll give you an example. We have three of the top five wholesalers in the country, including the number one in the country. And by far, 
wholesale clearly have the most complex pricing tiers and structures of all the origination channels between correspondent, retail, and wholesale. And we do have a customer that generates over 170 unique pricing scenarios or rate sheets daily, each time they price or intraday reprice. And you think wow. about the complexity of that, Dave, in managing that. And we've got to give them the tools to make piecemeal of that. Some of these customers are not turning off their pricing. There are those out there that will shut down the desk temporarily, and certainly in a down market. And there are some of our customers and players out there choose not to do that from a customer service standpoint. So velocity is key. Every minute that that market's down, they've got to get that pricing turned around quickly as possible because they're exposed in a down market as those locks continue to come in. So they rely on our product to get that out the door as quickly as possible and turn that new pricing over to the street. Yeah, whenever this market contracts, it's those that could produce those kind of rate sheets on an ongoing basis or keep the desk, the lock desk open as they're bringing in this volume or entering into an unusual period of volatility. That just has got to have such a strong advantage. So I want to really get into your solution and a little bit of the journey. How did you come up with this idea and how has your product evolved and grown to where it is at today? You know, it it was out of necessity, as we've discussed a little while ago. I came from the computer science side of things and never put that completely in in the rearview mirror at the time. I had a great desire to move over to the business side. As I got into the capital market space as a practitioner, I clearly needed to use automation to refine those things. And in the agency relations group, when I was doing more from a relationship standpoint and negotiation side, I didn't have the need for quite as much. But as I moved into the capital market space, clearly everything is technology driven. And I was able to put on that cap again. And as it turns out, it was the best thing I ever did to have both backgrounds, to bring my technology, formal education with me into the mortgage space and blend the two of those, I think has been a very powerful force for me and and certainly a benefit for our customers. And because I've been on both sides of the coin, we weren't just a technology company or technologist who said, let's get into the mortgage space. I had the technology background. I've been on both sides. After I left Peru, I'd gone to some other shops, including a startup. I'd been to an intermediary that did some correspondence, but we also sold to aggregators as well. So I've been everywhere along the food chain from the beginning of a startup all the way to the top of the food chain. And as I built various tools myself in my day-to-day jobs, I stood back and I had had an opportunity to do some consulting. I had taken a step back and after one of my positions, I said, you know what? I think I want to take a crack at this. I saw how some folks were struggling. I saw that in the shops I was working at, as well as I see it today with our customer base. They're definitely at the back of the food chain, and and I get it to a certain extent. The focus is on production and the LOS and all the sales tools, and that's where the focus tends to be. So we found that our capital markets partners are very much looking for that technology. And what we bring to the table is we're an extension of their staff. We bring it into their shop in such a way that their IT folks have very little involvement. They don't have to spin up SQL Server and they're not having to do massive build out with business analysts and product developers. We bring them to the table. We have somewhat of a roadmap that we work with them on initially. And we basically do 95% of the build out virtually 100% of it. We save about 5% of the build out just to to do OJT or on-the-job training with them so they can get familiar with the product and the maintenance of it and the like. But we bring to them a turnkey solution the day they turn it on. And our customers are thrilled with that. They're not having to draw resources away from IT or other business groups. And certainly internally, when they sell Anovian to their own internal senior management, that's a big win as well. Well, how many resources do we have to deck against this vendor to get them up and running? Well, actually very few. 
It's just going to be me and my team working with them. Okay. And that's been a big win for us and for our IT staff. Yeah. I think about your background, how this all has evolved. It just looks like you've been at the right place at the right time with the right creativity and brought a great solution to many of your clients. There's an old phrase out there that says, if you want to be successful, do what successful people do. So let's talk about your customers. They are some of the largest companies in the nation originating mortgage loans. We could go in and start naming a number of them. By the way, I'll put a plug in for those that are not signed up with you on your LinkedIn. I'm going to encourage people to connect with you. So talk a little bit about your customer base. It is, again, probably the top echelon of the industry. We're blessed. If you would visit Inovient.com, it's shortly a uh, second page after our landing page, you will see most of our customers on there. And I think a lot of people will be surprised. That's true, Dave. We have a lot of large players out there and a lot of familiar names that folks will recognize. We do not have a traditional marketing sales force like a lot of our competitors do in, in our space. And I think because of that, we may not have been as visible in that respect. We have cultivated this relationship with our capital markets partners organically through networking. So I think in terms of the operational sales side of the industry, they may not be familiar with the Inovian name, but certainly in the capital market space, our folks know who Inovian is. That's for sure. Well, I think it comes back to if you want to be successful, find out what successful people are doing. They're using Inovian. That may sound like an overt promote, but it is. If you find a tool that can do so many complex things and do it dependably and bring you results that are consistent with what the desired outcome is and competitive, why would you not? So I encourage all of our listeners to, first of all, if you're listening to this and you're in sales, the first question you should be asking your production manager who should ask the CEO, are we using? Inovient. If not, why not? It is such an important tool. Ted, you're a thought leader in the market. You speak at a lot of conferences. Where do you see the capital markets going as we look forward? Is it going to get easier or more complex? You know, Dave, that's a tough call. I think to a certain extent, it's certainly gotten more complex and more competitive. I think with automation where it's gone today and how interactive we are today with real-time pricing and the like, we're squeezing a lot of those inefficiencies out, but it's also a race to the bottom at the same time. It all depends on what perspective you take. I think in terms of what economic components are factored into pricing and execution, it's probably going to continue to get more complex. They can price more into it because of the advent of bulk bidding and additional spot pricing. And what I mean by spot pricing, pricing to the moment. It's beginning to happen on the servicing right side as well, not only the mortgage assets, but servicing buyers would like to be able to spot prices real time as well. It's tough to get there. And again, there's a compromise because when they spot price, Sellers lose that forward view as to, well, what am I going to get for that in the future when I sell it? If everything becomes spot priced, it's going to be a little tougher to know where am I going to price today and what am I going to get for the value of that when I sell it tomorrow? Again, all of that aside, the industry is moving that direction. PennyMac was the first one to introduce APIs with respect to loan level pricing, and it's been very well received, both from technology partners and sellers alike. There's many of them out there that are still pricing through various formats of expelled spreadsheets. And we are constantly having to chew on those and consume those. As far as the transaction side, I think as long as you're leveraging a technology partner such as Inovient, or you happen to have the technology capabilities in-house, the transacting side is going to get much simpler. And it already has to a large extent. That may be because of the APIs or, or other technology advancements that the buy side and sell side buyers are using to integrate. Or in the case of most of the correspondent and the aggregator community out there today, even if they're still using spreadsheets, which the vast majority are, unfortunately, shops such as Inovient and again, our, our competitors out there, we bring a lot of value to the market. There's a lot of data out there that is so inconsistent. 
and shops such as ourselves really help our customers transact in a clean and consistent way. But it's going to change quickly. And we can come back and talk about that as well, because I think a lot of folks aren't necessarily positioned for where we are in that regard. Let's talk about that right now, because when change comes, it usually comes quickly. I mean, it's sudden. And when you have those suddenlies, are you prepared? And how long does it take to implement a solution that you have? Depending on what we have to plug into in their existing architecture, it depends on the complexity. But certainly from a pricing standpoint, we can get them up and running in weeks. And And from an execution standpoint, it may not be far from that as well. And you're right, Dave. I remember back in prior to the 08 Great Recession, it was tough to get people's attention from an execution standpoint. They were making money hand over fist. Some of them despite themselves with what we call (laughs) non-QM today was all all day subprime. People were selling for a 108, 110, 112 handle on some of their pricing. And you just couldn't get their attention for products that would squeeze every penny out of their price and efficiency. I remember one customer telling me, well, I don't have time to count nickels and dimes right now. Well, as we all know, it's certainly not today, but it will be back with a vengeance quickly. When change happens, as you said, it happens fast. It will be overnight. And just as shops are planning for when this is over, overstaffing, production, overcapacity, and, and I think average pay has gone up from competitive reasons and all of focusing on our purchase market when that refis go away, all of those things make a lot of sense. But also when that margin starts to compress, it's going to compress quickly. And it already has come in to a certain mm-hmm. extent. I think we still have another quarter or two of near record profits, but it's already starting to compress and it will continue to because of this excess capacity. And as it starts to compress, rates will come down just because of margin compressions. Rates will come down. It'll take some of those folks, refi candidates that are out of the money and bring them into the money and and start another self-imposed, if you will, refi wave uh, and bring more into the money. And that will continue to snowball until margins are razor thin again. And again, as we mentioned, it's going to happen very quickly. As we're getting out in front of the operational side, I think it's very prudent for the capital markets folks to get out in front of that from a pricing standpoint. We will get back to days when a per diem roll will be a basis point a day or a month will be 30, 40 basis points. It will be back. And the precision that you have in your execution and pricing is paramount, that you eliminate all leakage in your pricing and squeeze every penny out of your execution. And I think people can get a little lazy right now because they're making so much money, but it's very prudent to get out in front of that because that day will come soon. You know, for a computer analyst and a capital markets guy, you're pretty passionate in how you talk about this. What makes you so passionate? It's almost getting to your why. Why are you in business and what makes you willing to invest so much into this? It's just the way I'm wired, Dave. I care deeply about our customers. I know that may sound a little passe, but I really do. I mean, we care about our customers' financial health and making them as profitable as we can. And we are very much relationship-based. I think all of our customers would attest to that. So it's just how our culture is. It starts with me and our entire team is passionate about service. We are all very consultative with respect to contacts with our customers. And when they send out an email to our support team or call one of us on the team, somebody's there to answer a question right away. And if that person isn't available or doesn't have the knowledge set, they will engage one of us and that answer will be resolved very quickly. And our customers constantly attest to the fact that our service is unparalleled in that regard. So I think it just comes from my nature and we seek out people that share that same passion to help others. And I think it's reflected in our technology as well. And when customers come to us with a technology or we'd like to automate this, or can you develop this report or this transaction for us or whatever, we try to engage our customers to take a step back. There might be a better way to get from A to Z versus the path you're taking. And most of the time there is, and they're usually very happy with it when it's all said and done. 
like, well, good grief. I didn't know what I didn't know that we could take this other direction and not only solve this problem, but reduce the entire process by 50% or whatever it may be. So uh, we really enjoy doing that. And we're not nickeling and diming that. That is part of our product offering as well. So I think our customers are very pleased with the fact that we get the job done for them efficiently and they're very grateful for it. It's a great product. I encourage people to check it out. What's your website and how can people best connect with you, Ted? They can go to innovient.com. That is I-N-N-O-V-I-E-N-T, innovient.com. And you can reach out through our sales link on the backside. There's an info ad and a sales link. They can contact us there. They can also reach out to me directly if they want at T. Kramer, T-K-R-A-M-E-R at innovient.com. And I'd be happy to talk to them. Ted, thanks so much for taking time to share with our listeners your background, your product, where the capital markets have been, where they're at today, and what we have to look forward to here probably sooner than many of us want. Thank you so much for coming on the program today. Thanks, David. My pleasure. I encourage you also, listeners, to check out Ted's LinkedIn profile. You can see that by putting in Ted Kramer at LinkedIn and then connect with him. He's doing more and more posting and sharing his thoughts on the capital markets. He, again, is one of the quiet thought leaders, and I'm trying to help him become one of the well-known thought leaders in the capital market space. Uh, Good interview. Please share that with those that run the capital markets in your company and see if it might help them. It's a powerful tool. If you want to stay competitive, you need tools like this. Next week, I'm excited to have on our Hot Topics segment, Nick Hedges, who is the CEO of Moment Feed, and very interesting company. By the way, we're talking about digital marketing. He's well able to talk on this topic, especially given the fact that he was the CEO of Velocify, and when that company was sold to Ellie Mae, he became Senior Vice President at Ellie Mae. So I'm really looking forward to the interview. I've talked to Nick about the content we're going to be covering. You're not going to want to miss this next Hot Topic. Also, later today, I am going to be on a TV show. It's one based in Florida, and you're going to want to check this out. We'll put a link to it in our show notes, so you'll be aware of it. Check it out there. It's the Who News show, and we'll have it in the show notes, so you can go watch that show tonight. Very interesting. Who knew? Talking about housing finance, and in some cases, what the role of the financial planner plays in the process. Good to have you with us, everybody. I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors, Finastra, as well as the Community Home Mortgage Lenders of America, as well as Indicom, Incelerate, Mobility RE, and Modex. Have a great week, folks, and look forward to talking to you next week. You've been listening to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin' of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Join us next week, and thanks for listening.